podcast, guys, is brought to you by the new term fxphd.com. Over at FXPHD, we obviously have a new term just starting, the October term, and in it is a new DOP course that many of you listening to the RC might be interested in. It covers gripping, how to move the camera, all the cool gear involved in moving the camera, and it's being taught by myself and Ben Allen. It's just one of the many courses on offer over at fxphd.com. And by supporting FXPHD, you support podcasts like this. Thanks so much. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week we'll be having a rush. We'll also be geeking out with tech in New York and talking about some of the latest and greatest stuff from around the net and from the world of digital cinematography because that's what we do here at the FX Guide RC podcast. We mine the news, filter the blogs, and go down some rather infamous and quite cuddly rat holes. This is the camera tech that Jason and I obsess about, discuss, argue and try and figure out. We want you to join the conversation and be a part of it. Jason Wingrove in the studio. How are you, sir? Hello. How are we all? Very, very good. Yes, in the Red Room this week, we have the DOP from Ron Howard's new film, Rush, welcoming back uh, our... uh, our very esteemed uh, Anthony Dodd Mantle. Yeah, who I think he's been on the show two or three times now. He's uh, almost a regular. We love love having him on, and so so happy he could have a chat. I'm just I am just busting with 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 anticipation to see this film. So I just um, should point out for dear listeners that uh, Mr. Wingrove here is a bit of a Formula One freak. Uh, he's been known to watch. It's also all, my era as well, in a way of of uh, my sort of growing up in UK at that time, and you know, my dad was a somewhat racing driver at that time, and you know, uh, had cars and grew up in the pits of all of these racetracks, and uh, so I, I'm I can just, imagine and you apart as from a that, young... I just I, I love Ron's work. Oh yeah, love Rod Anthony's Anthony's work. A good mate of mine shot second unit, and who uh, was? yeah, I just uh, Michael Wood, who's just yeah, who's who, who's I grew up with here in the camera department. Used to be my assistant, and then used to shoot for me when I directed. And now he's he's uh, yeah he's he may slightly have gone on to better things. <laughs> when you uh, were um <laughs> when you were growing up, were you you know running around kind of pretending to be a young James Hunt? Uh, I don't think I really knew anything about the drivers and all that sort of stuff. I think it was just it was just literally in the pits and just you know hearing the cars and just the smell and and just the I'd activity. I've forgotten and about the, that six wheel Formula One car, the Tyrrell, yeah, yeah. Tyrrell six wheeler. I used to have a radio control version of that thing. I love that. That was awesome. It was crazy back then. There was personalities. I mean, there is still personalities now in Formula One, but there was personalities in the car that were trying different crazy things. Oh, yeah. Now it's so limited and so locked down and so regulated. I mean, you know, back then they were doing crazy things with skirts and unusual things and just trying to circumvent the, 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 the rules any way they can. And big time, like trying six wheels, that's just bonkers. Oh, I know. It, it was, was great just, seeing, you know, Enzo Ferrari and Sterling Moss and, and just tons yeah, of people And just film. awesome from an art department point of view, this film. Anyway, to... Um, actually, I should... Recreate. I actually want to, before we just move on to the main thing, just as a point of whatever, yeah. I, I was really, really pleased when I looked this up on uh, IMDb Pro. I mean, I loved the film to death, but this was a budget of about $38 million, uh, I estimated. just astounding. And they've already grossed 187 million worldwide. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a real. It's going to get a real groundswell, and it hasn't. There's still a lot of countries that hasn't even hasn't even launched that yet. Well, of course, they they you know people were claiming, oh well, cloudy to beat it at the box office. But you know, if you only make a film for 40 million, you don't have to beat every yeah. other film and pull in 300 million to make a profit. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if you make it for 40 and it's already at 190, and you haven't even 
you know, gone to uh, those extra markets. Astounding, astounding. You know, it's also Standing really production because they got had to build. They built cars. They built their entire cars. They yeah. built 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 mock-ups. Had re, you know enthusiasts coming and bringing their own historical actual cars from the time. But also, you know, they got to build a lot of stuff, oh, recreating yeah. a lot of VFX, which I'm sure you'll cover at some stage in some other podcast. Yeah, no, it was good. It was uh, it was very well done, and and mm. they really couldn't um, you know basically use any of the tracks that uh, you know you think you would you have to use because most of them just don't exist anymore. Yeah. Quite frankly, yeah. I mean, um, I sort of imagined that at a low budget film like this, they would have done exactly that, right? They would have gone, oh well, you know, um, clearly we're going to need to uh, you know shoot around the world, and yep. you know we'll go to all these places because be much cheaper than sort of doing visual effects to make stuff. All very well and good if you actually have those tracks that you can go on. I mean. Monaco or something obviously would be expensive to shut that down. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, like some of the other trace tracks, I just assumed that they'd be able to get to. But uh, no, not, not, not so. Yeah. No, I think they had to use some of the other less built up tracks and, you know, and and pretend. And well, basically they used two tracks in England because um, right. most of the other ones just, uh, just weren't available. Yeah. I think they also went to Nürburgring in Germany, I think, because it was a German kind of co-production. Well, the actual track section there is now covered in graffiti and has flowers, as you'll hear in the interview. And it's right. like a bit of a, you right. know, Morrison kind of tribute yeah. kind yeah, of there's thing. Yeah, there's another section. There's a few sections. Hmm, interesting. So, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm jealous that you've seen it, busting to, to get my, to hear it and to, to hear Anthony chat about it. Oh, yeah. And as you say, the other thing about this, if it was, you know, if that would be enough. But the fact that it has uh, Ron Howard involved is just yeah. Of course, awesome. I just know um, obviously it doesn't. You don't earn that kind of money on, on uh, in your uh, in the box office unless the film's actually, uh, you know, I don't know, great. Perhaps might actually be a good story and might actually have characters and you know shit like that. So, do you, speaking of, would you know like Brands Hatch and Monza and all those sort of tracks? Would you like sort of be a was that like you were sort not, of aware of those? Not vividly, but yeah, I definitely was uh, Silverstone and Brands and uh, Spa. Uh, that's where I would, uh, I mean, I know the tracks, know of the tracks, but but I would physically have, yeah, been like a five-year-old. Right, okay. Because um, I've got to say, I mean, I was obviously um, young as well, but I was, I remember the whole Nicky Lauder thing mm. because it was quite, it was quite startling to see someone back then. And look, when you're a kid, you're very politically um, stupid and uh, and insensitive, but I was shocked, obviously, to see Nicky Lauda's face, and obviously mm. he was driving so soon yeah. after um, the uh, accident that it was all across the news. And it's fantastic that he's still involved. Literally, you know, yep. you watch Formula One, every, you know, every he second weekend, and he the is film. there. He appears in the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. It, it, absolutely. It's a it's a great thing. But I just want to do a big shout out to Digital Negative. Uh, sorry, Double Negative in uh, London. Uh, Dean Egg in London did uh, a lot of that track work in recreating stuff, and the obviously the famous uh, uh, corner where Nicky Rauder spun out and right. uh, flamed out. Yeah. And he only had some Super 8 footage to uh, to work on, as you'll hear in that interview later in the show. So, big big round of uh, applause and whatever for um, the work mm. in that film. Yeah. Okay, but also we're going to be talking to Jason Diamond in uh, New York, who Jason. Wingrove has, <laughs> you should tell us, has some uh, cool stuff that he's been playing with. Yeah, been shooting with the Dragon and uh, also in p- tinkering with the uh, the new Microsoft Surface, which is uh, doing some interesting things with, with Dragon footage and R3D. Um, but you had a particular reason you wanted to talk to him, right? Uh, the motion mount is what he's had his hands right. on, which I was very, very keen to um, find a little bit more about it because it has some quirks. And we'll dig into those quirks and uh, yeah, find out why. Maybe not for everybody, but still a cool piece of kit. Yeah, I have to say that's 
that's the thing we kind of want to try and do as much as we can here at the RC, which is just not go off the press releases. Obviously, we do you know, reference press releases when something's new has just come out and it hasn't been released yet. But whenever anything is in the field, we'd much prefer to actually get it, play with it, or speak to those that have, so, so for, you can kind of get an honest take on it. For those that don't know that mount, uh, it is a uh, basically a global shutter, uh, additional global shutter mount for the Epic or, or Scarlet that will uh, do a whole bunch of uh, effects, including variable ND and... Um, yeah, so we'll go through those, but uh, yeah. So what we're talking about out. is, like, instead of a Canon mount, it's a... Uh, yeah, it's available for pre-order now. It's PL mount and Canon mount, about, I think, 3900 bucks. So, yeah, maybe more of a rental item, but we'll, we'll go through that with the interview with Jace. Yeah, it was great seeing him on that uh, Microsoft launch of the Surface. Yeah, that was impressive. It links to the show notes, and we talk about that, obviously. But, uh, yeah, it's a, an impressive demo. So, uh, what else do we have... Uh, so we swing back to the news. Well, speaking of Germany, mm. I think probably the biggest news uh, for a while, I think. Uh, pick me up on this if I'm wrong, Mike, but the Ari Amira may well be uh, one of the best cameras, I think, released in quite some time. Yes, we posted on it on uh, FX Guide on the homepage the second we saw it and heard about it. Um, it was really a matter of trying to pick up stuff from the video they put out because there wasn't a lot of stuff um, in terms of spec sheets and all the kind of normal stuff. But the main thing we didn't get, and I still haven't got, is a price. Have you? No, we do not have a price. <laughs> Less than Alexa is all we've been told. But uh, given the fact that this camera uh, needs to, and is being fairly uh, aimed at, uh, indie film, reality TV, doco, you know, I guess it's competition. I mean, you know, it's good to have it all. Could have probably a stab at what this, who this, this camera is actually aimed at, or what its competition is. Is, is I guess is C three hundred, five hundred, um, Scarlet, um, Vericam. Uh, more run. This is basically it's designed to be more run and gun, more simple, adjustable ergonomics, more one person shooter, uh, less of a post driven workflow. Still the same as they uh, insist. Still the same Alexa look. Uh, Thirty-five. Still a super thirty-five mil sensor. Still the same dynamic range. Fourteen plus stops of dynamic range. That was the thing that got me. The fact that it's still yeah, big sensor. Exactly. That front end is still the same. Two hundred frames a second yep. without any sensor crop whatsoever. Uh, but I think in a way with the addition of uh, variable in, switchable variable variable NDs, which of course Alexa has variable NDs, uh, switchable LUTs, and rather than having a menu that perhaps you have uh, a, a first AC on the other side of the camera who can switch this stuff and dig through a menu and has time. They've made it more, the, the menu system is A, uh, accessible from operator side, mm-hmm. but also almost for all of them quick must-get-to quick functions like LUTs and, and, and things. It's all, all they've broken it out to a button per function almost. So really designed to be more of a one-person operator, uh, more of a simpler post path, but also uh, has the ability to, I think, step up to a lot of other productions. You could do drama easily with this, or it could be B camera on a drama that has uh, Alexa for A cam. Uh, I think it's very capable across a wide range of things. And I, I, 
when you look at the way this is set up ergonomically with the way that you can slide the EVF forward and aft, you can adjust shoulder pad forward and aft. It's designed to be lightly and easily picked up with one hand. They've really worked on the thinness. They've slimmed it down from the current Alexa. They've dropped a lot of weight. It's uh, very much designed to to be like, you know, a Super 35, uh, I guess you could call it like a beta cam, and yeah. also worked on the media side of things, which is interesting, uh, working on the new uh, CFast 2, these new uh, ultra-fast CF cards, no S by S cards. It'll do, obviously, This it's a, it's a new format of CF cards. I think they will only work with a C fast to capable camera i don't think this is the kind of thing you're going to be able to put in a 5d mark iii and suddenly have um seamless bufferless um raw recording on your 5d mark iii with magic lantern um i imagine it's uh, only going to work with with the cameras that they're designed to yeah uh, so yeah it's working on newly released media i mean it's great having that sort of 0.6 up to what 2.1 nd and stuff in there yeah. If you are that kind of run-and-gun shooter that's got it on the shoulder and you're just wanting to shoot, you don't want to be mucking around with stuff. Of course, it, it, it little initially when it first came out, I think a couple of people posted on, um, on Twitter or something that they thought it might be a fixed lens. Just to be clear about this, it absolutely isn't. And obviously, it has an interchangeable EF lens or, or um, you know, whatever sort of lens. No, it's changeable want. mounts. It's, it's changeable mounts, I'm saying, yeah. yeah. PL, it's, uh, um, it's got a B4 mount, uh, and also a Canon mount, which are so... Yeah, EF lenses. It's, yeah. It, this is designed to really be an every man's camera, really. I think it can step up to a lot of different, a lot of work. Uh, the EVF, I think, is I think a, the EVF the is, EVF is a lesson yeah. in how to do shit. Yeah, that, that folding is an astounding out. piece of clever piece of kit. And it's yeah. not, there's no, I thought at first, because it, what it, basically it's, it's a uh, fully featured um um, OLED EVF, yep. but flips out on the side is an LCD monitor. You can do um, what is clever on on the monitor. It's on the flip out LCD. There's uh, hot keys on there, physical buttons on there, not like a touch screen. Physical hot keys that you can uh, assign. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think what else it does. It's it's very 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 impressive. So you can actually well it twists um, around. I mean it's a proper yeah it twists around folds out. You can actually fold it flat back on itself for the first AC to to mm. if you're running it that way uh, to to look at things and uh, and it's, I thought it was going to be like a cheaped out thing whereby when you fold it in it reflects back like through a mirror. Yeah, but no. it is physically two actual monitors, so two you monitors. can run run both at one time. It's something again you can't out of the box. You can't do that with you know with an Epic. But that said, uh, I think the whole camera you can only judge it. I mean, you it definitely can judge it on its own merits. But also, it the big the big the big judge will be. Uh, when they finally give us a price, I think they're probably a bit scared to tell us. We can all imagine that this is going to be uh, ARRI money. It's going to be uh, a price tag uh, from the ARRI universe. So yeah, but the only thing I'd say there is will not be cheap. I don't think it's going to be, you know, it's... It's, it's like is... they've said, look, the Alexa was really powerful mm. in an unexpected way because it was recording on camera in just, um, you know, high-quality codecs, but nevertheless compressed. Everyone was saying, oh, compressed cameras would never... You know, be any good. And it was actually this. Uh, it's pretty good. This uh, compressed uh, stuff we're getting out of this camera. Yes. So what they've done is they basically amped it up, and they said, "Well, if you think that's good, what if we did that and then made it even more 
Uh, you don't have to worry about different versions and, and uh, downloading software. You don't have to make it like it's going to be different. You can put it in a rental pool and it'll be a workhorse. And, yeah. uh, Log C, Rec yeah. 709, lots so, of flavors of ProRes up to 444. So if you were going out and you, know, you weren't comfortable with computers maybe so much and you weren't in a world where you wanted to be uploading different firmwares and stuff, this would be a gift. You'd be like, great, now I've got a good, solid digital camera that feels like that, as you said, that, you know, that, uh, was it Sony BV, whatever it was, um, the, the, you know, the digital beta cam. Yeah. That was the de facto go-to camera. They must have sold tens of thousands of those worldwide because they just worked and they were just solid, interchangeable and yeah. reliable. It's the and, camera Sony should have maybe built. And they were very expensive at the time. And I think this will be expensive as well. This will probably be another wake-up call as the fact that this stuff costs money, you know, and we have been completely spoiled as to what cameras should cost these days. Look at the build quality of this thing. Uh phew. Yeah, no, that Can we get to the point where we make a stab in the dark as to pricing? I think you have to. 50 plus? Yeah, I was going to say that... Um, 60? You don't want it to be 70. 50 grand. You want it to be 30, and it's going to come in at 50. You want it to be 30, and it's going to be... Ari Money then says it's, it's at least 40, and then, yeah, 40 plus. But if I it think was what 30 or less, then... It's all over Red Rover. This thing's going to just like take off like wildfire. 40-something, yes, and then you're going to need to... I think what they're going to do is package it up with... Um, but the, the plus is also the media is going to cost you less. It's not going, to be, not going to be as cheap as your regular CF cards, but it will be cheaper than uh, S-by-S cards, which you know can be quite quite pricey. But it's designed to be you know, a bit more affordable for run-and-gun guys, so... And you know the other thing yeah, that's really it'll be nice expensive. is that Ari isn't just chasing the top end because it would have yeah. been easy to say the next camera from Ari that is of any major consequence would be a 4K more expensive hitting red on the head. Yeah, this is you know their Scarlet effectively, right? Yeah, I guess it's the it's their Scarlet. However, I think that there's a lot that Alexa could. I mean, the the Alexa two or whatever the next version of Alexa. There's a lot of DNA here. That I would love to see in the new version, the EVF. I think there's probably a lot of Alexa owners would love to swap over their EVF to this thing. Yeah, I, I mean, think I'd, it's, I'd like uh, to see it, a smaller camera body for yep, the definitely. the Alexa two, because yep. I mean, especially in stereo yep. rigs, this would be. Too I could bulky. see how they would could definitely adapt adapt this and, and what they've learned designing this that they could definitely move on to Alexa, which is you know whatever now, four or so years old, three. Yeah, and this is going to be put a put a big battery on the back. This isn't going to be light. This is not a little camera that you. No, but they've saved a lot of a lot of weight. Pretty thin, Uh, but it's uh, not. uh, Yeah, yeah, they've definitely aimed to make it um, far more easily shoulderable. But um, I I I I think this is an absolute shining example of how to build a camera, um, regardless of of whatever. Your this is definitely adaptable to a lot of things, and I think that that is the key today. Is one day someone's going to be doing a reality TV series, and then the next the next month they want to have their own camera and go off and do drama. So I think this is uh, this is this is a masterclass in how to design any product. It's a beautiful piece of industrial design, regardless of what it is. Now, that wasn't the only cool thing that Ari showed at IBC. They showed another very cool piece of tech, which is much more, um, well, less commercial, I guess, in the uh, 
in the development sense, but definitely something that interests me. Yeah, a lot. you can probably get your head more around this one. This is their um, their motion uh, motion scene camera, I guess. We saw we saw some people dabbling with this tech. This tap, this tech is not necessarily new, uh, but the idea of doing three D or interpolating three D information from a single taking lens with a couple of other sensors or other other lenses either side of to left and right of of the main lens and extracting your depth data from that, right, Mike? Yes, I imagine a camera that either side of the lens has two matchbox that would uh, be effectively, you know, to the eye, just some weird tech that's sitting there getting in the way of the lens. But in fact, what it's doing is it's producing a Z-depth or a depth um, analysis of the scene. Now, I've seen these going back uh, a decade, and the problem normally is the clarity upon which that Z-depth lines up. So in the early days, the reason that this tech didn't take off is that they were like, oh, you'd use it for keying, right? You'd isolate the person from the scene and you could key based on Z-depth. The trouble was, you know, hair, edging, all the stuff around the edging, it just wasn't high enough fidelity to be able to do a good key. And apart from anything else, if you think about it, this black and white image is effectively what used to be an 8-bit file. So it was, you know, didn't have a lot of subtlety in it because it was, um, you know, if you think about RGB, each of the channels isn't very big, but together they turn into a 24-bit file. And so it was like this extra Z depth was, yeah, okay, what am I going to use it for? Of course, run the clock forward to today, and we have a lot of people wanting to do stereo uh, conversions, and having this kind of information uh, from the live action is immensely interesting. Now, there's a, a bunch of gotchas that we just don't know about until it um, sort of comes out and testing, and this is only an experiment prototype. So how good is it in terms of its accuracy? But also, how do I get to control um, my window? Because clearly, if I'm shooting way into the distance, um, if I had the grayscale set between here and the mountains, then any fidelity in the, in the close-up is just gone. I need to wind it in. So basically, the, the black, if you like, of one end of my Z-depth is four meters away, and my white is a meter away, right? That gives right. me that kind of zone. But in other shots, that's not what I want. In other shots, I actually want to have a you know, shot where it's, you know, 100 metres to a kilometre or whatever it is. I guess the importance is. is that you have that correct information, then you can choose to scale it Yeah, it's not... On. Like, if you had a floating point file that was generated in a computer, well, it doesn't so much matter about this bracketing, right? Because you can just wind in the fidelity you want. But in these sorts of cameras, the problem was that you didn't have 32-bit floating point um uh, samples. You just had a, a limited number of samples, so you had to pick the sample depth you wanted. So you want you know, detail in this room, for example, right? So I could tell the difference between my laptop and the wall behind my laptop. That mattered. But if I go outside, that very short distance isn't relevant anymore. And I now want for a car shot, I want the difference between the two cars in the shot and maybe the guy that's jumping from one car to the other for my stereo conversion. So there's a lot of stuff in here in terms of fidelity not just how accurate it is in a XY sense, in like, can you get a very fine line? Can you get a sharp edge? That's one thing. But also how much fidelity I have in Z depth and how much I can adjust that. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty tall order to make this work. People have tried it before and, and not found it produces enough relevant information to make it kind of uh, doable. But that being said, I totally applaud them. I'm not saying they can't do this. I'm just saying those are the issues um, that they have to face. They would know that incredibly well, I'm sure. And this is apparently a project that brings together a number of uh, parties from a number of different countries in a kind of a joint mm-hmm. EU kind of initiative. So hopefully this will produce what we've been waiting for, something like this that actually kind of works. Okay. So, look, I think 
there hasn't been an awful lot of other news. We've talked a little bit. We we will talk a little bit uh, with Jason Diamond talking about the the carbon, the very cool carbon fiber version of the dragon. If you want to drop fifty thousand dollars to lose uh, half a pound in a pound, lose a pound in weight. Well, I think we should. Yeah, I think we should before we go into that kind of red discussion, go out into the red room uh, because yeah. Uh, because that uh, may sort of be a, a more natural fit as we put those uh, two projects together. The thing about the film um, uh, Rush, as well, if you remember, we've, I should sort of flag this, we've been trying now to introduce each week not only these technical discussions that we're talking about, like, say, with Jason Diamond uh, from New York, but speaking with some of the world's leading DOPs about uh, films that are coming out. And so if you remember, we did one on the film Jobs, um, but this one is like Jobs or... Uh, the film Rush, shot on the um, Alexa. Though in this case, it was shot in the 2.8 uh, Arri RAW format. If you remember, Jobs was shot actually in camera in just uh, the compressed format because it was a lower budget uh, film. Jobs was literally maybe, uh, what, a fifth of the price of this film. Um, even though this isn't a big budget film, it's shooting Arri RAW to the codex and shooting at, a kind of a, at that kind of a level. So as we've been discussing Arri stuff, maybe we go to the Red Room for that and then we'll come back to discuss a bit more Red stuff um, after that. Yep. You are entering the Red Room. So uh, I guess um, I wanted to start just, to, if I can, in a technical um, bent. And obviously this film was shot uh, Ari Alexa. First one was lensing. Of course, I always think of long lenses because of the nature of uh, actual Formula One photography requires very long lenses. And I guess that leads to the question, were you thinking in terms of capturing these cars the way we have them in our heads from real coverage of the sport, both now and then? Or were you trying to break that and go with lensing that was very different from how we've seen the cars before? Yeah. Um, because the story is, and the the understanding, the comprehension of the story, is partially based on, because you have to keep the audience up to, up to date, which is what going, we, we, we watch what is going on in the races. And because... Um, we have to sort of explain a certain amount of information about the battling going on the tracks. And you can't always show that everything. Um, it's a bit like that on Formula 1. You've got commentators, 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 filling your head in. And so it's part of the entertainment. And you don't have that when you're real live in the race, watching it, struggling to see it. But when you're, it's a televised sport, you have these commentators. So use them to help keep the, the intelligent, less intelligent audience up to date on what's going on. And that involves long lenses. And because of that, I used... Uh, apart from my own operator myself, sometimes I pulled in a couple of other operators who are used to, to knowing where to place themselves on the track, understanding how motor racing really is. They really do know. And I had a couple of people who'd spent the last 20 years doing this, and they really were quite extraordinary in the way they lensed and understood how to lens. And they really, the small moves they made, and, you know, I'd say, go somewhere here, I think this is good. And they say, yeah, we should go here, just quietly. And you saw the result. They were quite extraordinary. I used those people, and as I said earlier, uh, Ron is used to having long, the films he's done over the years uh, with other people, qualified cinematographers, of course. He's quite used to long lensing and just covering. And I come from a completely different school of thought, really. Um, nothing appalls me more than that kind of coverage, unless it's a, it, there's a dramatic reason for it, as I said, for the commentating camera and the, the, the motor racing camera. I'm much more interested in getting in between the axis of, of what's going on in the story, the, the key players, Hunt's louder. The cars, the third person, the third person in the film is a car. And I wanted to get in there and be around there all the time and really plant the audience in that situation. So, so 
combined with these longer cameras, I and flying cameras, we pulled in Russian arms and I threw them out. I tested Russian arms and various uh, pursuit vehicles, but all stabilized heads just for me took the sex and the violence and the demonic nature of motivating out of the pictures. All I could see was a, a Russian arm traveling at an incredible speed, 12 inches from the face of a motivating driver in a car. And I could see literally the expression on the face of the motivating driver thinking not about the race and the drama and what the story beat is, but he's just thinking, my God, I've got to keep this car in a straight line, otherwise we're all going to die. And there was no vibration in the picture. I thought, what a load of rubbish. This isn't the 70s, this isn't the 60s, it isn't danger. So I pulled out, which was great for the budget, I pulled out all the Russian arms, which cost a bomb. They're great, I pulled them out. I kept the helicopters, I kept the coverage cameras for story beats, um, very long lenses, up to, you know, 1,200, anything from, from 100 to 1,200, 1,500 uh, lenses, and I tried to really force my intelligence and Ron and I's intelligence into how to, how to work in and around the cast. And I pulled in, I had the Alexas as my basic studio package, uh, three or four from, from out of Alley Media in London. Uh, on Sundays I had 20 or 20 cameras, 30 cameras shooting, but my basic practice was three or four lectures. Shooting raw, which I love because I want latitude and I always have latitude. Mm. But I immediately went about trying to work out how I could bring this film back in time as much as possible in camera before even working on what I was going to do on the post. Now, one very important thing happened here, I know you've got the questions you want to answer, but in my early meetings with Ron, uh, and because of the budget, what we could and what we couldn't do, we had to get creative about how to make this film and how, how to give the audience the feeling that they travel around the world with these guys. And we couldn't go around the world because, number one, the tracks aren't there any longer. And if they are, they're, they're in, endowed with graffiti like James Morrison's grave in Père Lachaise in Paris, and you can't shoot on Nürburgring. It's covered with flowers and hippie drawings and so on. Uh, we couldn't go to Le Mans, we, we, oh, sorry, not Le Mans, we couldn't go to Monza, we couldn't go to Spa, we, we Brands Hatch doesn't race Formula One anymore. There are certain places you can't go to, and if you did go to Milan, Monaco, you'd have to completely rebuild the town and the environment around it and put millions and millions of extras in there, which you'd have the money for. So we had to build the whole film on existing, hard to find, but existing, substantially appalling, but I had to find it, um, archive material, real archive material. Let's dig around the world, literally, for months to find the relevant elements of the race around that time. And if we didn't have exactly the right cars, we'd then get this material. And first, I'd have to approve it technically, which is an extraordinary job with the editorial and Ron. But I finally had to say yes or no to the quality, and most of it was appalling, because I was going to make the whole palette, the whole visual palette of the film, Mike, based on this decision. So I have to put you in the place so you understand. So the whole whole selection process, which was before pre-production, where I did extensive tests and grading and with post-house uh, noise reduction tests with the area relativity noise reduction systems, I found uh, the archive material I thought was good enough. And it did, did two or three things. It it helped us helped us to know that we could be a, we would be able to tell this part of the story with a certain amount of production value, with thousands of people in the background that did look okay. I then had the task of deciding how to make that look right for me. So it didn't just look like archive and old archive. I wanted everything to go smoothly and without bumping aesthetically. I had to find a look with the Alexas and with the other cameras that could match that and marry off with that. And I had to find my color palette. And then we had to work on costume and construction to take selections of those real, real world archive shots and then build little bits, shoot our stuff and build the whole film around that. 
which is a deeply extraordinary task and magical to do, technically very complicated. So the cameras come into play there because I had to find cameras that I felt shooting in England in an awkward time of the year had the latitude and the tolerance to be when I could do it to tolerate the extraordinary uneven weather turns we have. You know, in Britain, it's not like Oz. You know what our summers are like. <laughs> and I was going to be shooting an exterior a great deal. So I wanted latitude, so I shot as much as I could on the Alexa, but I put lenses on them, on the cameras from the 60s. I've got lenses that were good enough for the Godfather, uh, Gordon Willis. So I thought, they're good enough for him, they're good enough for me. So I pulled in every piece of old glass I could find. I've done this before, and so this was enormous. I had to find very, very interesting old glass around the world. Dug it up, tested it all, matched it up, and then had a collection of glass and various semi-artifactual front piece glasses and everything just to get the pictures banged down in quality as soon as possible. Like Optimo lenses, if you know them. I banned any use of Optimo lens uh, on any camera, on any Alexa, under around about 100 mil where you can't see the difference anyway. All, all those wide, the wider lenses, which are so tempting to use because, <laughs> because uh, but they're too sharp and too clean and it just looks too modern. So I had to use, I had to have all my operators try and use primes when they could. Or never go below eighty or hundred mil. The films in two three. The film is in two three five, but obviously this would have yeah. excluded the opportunity to shoot anamorphically. Oh God, you can't. Yeah, yeah. you can. But working with the speed we were working and building locations and working some of the real places we were working in. Um, yes, I could have done, but you need you would need a good stop. I have good focus pullers, and you know that would have worked. But um, the size of the cameras. Um, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think, you know, the lenses I was going to put on the, I could mix anamorphic with spherical, I've done that before in films, but I knew I was going to be shooting spherical, whatever, on the cars and around the cars, so right. I stayed with one place, easy for the workflow. The other thing in addition to lens choice that would have struck, uh, imagine came up early in conversation, is just the whole idea that, well, obviously, Formula One cars at speed move fast, so there'll be a need to actually intermix obviously normal vision which is fast with slow-mo and so I was wondering if there are any choices there about because there must have been a call for for slow motion footage and you know there's a limit to how slower an Arri can go I used Phantom for extreme for extreme uh, slow-mo work um, I used Phantom but I wanted to uh, keep it down to a minimum but there were shots especially around Fuji but inspired by the drama, you know, I, I didn't want to just get into effect, effect, effect. There's one slow-mo shot in, in the film, which I don't like, where the, where the shot's ramps in one of the near-miss crashes in Monza with Lauda, where he nearly gets killed and finds his strength and his, survives and comes in as number four. I don't actually like, personally, that effect where you're in the car or in his helmet and we're seeing this car tip up, an amazing piece of post-work, but I felt it was slightly contrived, but it's, it's something that you discuss between the director and the post-boys, and there's very little of that in the film that we're not agreed about. But I, I use slow-mo, I push the Alex, as you know, to something like, I think, 60 or so, you start losing a lot of resolution. Um, otherwise, I use the, the Phantom, and it was mostly in Fuji, and that is at the, at the hilt of the high drama where these two guys have got to go out and do something neither of them want to do. I guess we should flag and for... Therefore, they don't really want to leave. They don't really want to leave the starting grid. So <laughs> I did that. So it's partly effect. It's also partly let's try and stop this where it's going. You know? I guess we should flag the fact that even though, obviously, you've got an amazing um, uh, you know, set of films. Obviously, Ron Howard is a, one of the world's leading directors. This wasn't a big studio budget film. This was actually, effectively, an indie production. 
Yeah, it's an indie production. It's important to respect. It's important to remember that Ron's, you know, Hollywood royalty and grown up. And it's interesting for me to meet a man so far into the heart of, you know, America's Buckingham Palace, the film industry, and um, and such a nice man, number one. I don't feel um, he's a very powerful man. He's very well supported. He's very, at the same time, extremely good-natured and understanding, and also quite open-minded. You know, um, and it's a, it was a blessing to. Feel I'm so close to that part of an enormous, you know, famous and infamous industry in America, and yet you're on the ground, chatting away, telling jokes, cracking jokes. You know, I could stand there in front of the shooting on day three and say, "Well, this is shit. We've got to do this better. You know, we've got to, we've got to do this better." And you could speak to him like friends and like a colleague that we do to each other. And when I pick up the blow and be talking to my buddies about, you know, the the, the night in the town or whatever, he's doing the same thing. Any difference that it might be Marty Scorsese and Tom Hanks and George Lucas, you know, and I, I talk to my buddies. It's a funny situation to be in for me, uh, and it's almost an inverse snobbery. Why not, though? You know, we all grow up, we do the same things, and the thing that brings us together, I think, is the, and we bond upon, bond around is our, our taste in films and our passion for filmmaking, and we find the people we like to work with, if they're lucky, and yeah. we share that, one and I, and very different people, but in, sometimes, you know, we're interested in the story, we both have that in common. That, Whatever drives the story is, is is a good script, and what the drama is is what gives the pictures in my mind. And I don't think about pictures when I read a script. First off, I just want a story that touches me. Yeah, I, interestingly, I mean, I'm paraphrasing now, but I remember Ron Howard saying something at a lecture I heard that it was like he basically assumes that everybody that turns up on set is a professional who's there to do a good job, and it just seemed like a really refreshing attitude to to walk on set and assume everyone is there because they're good at their job and they want to do a good job. It was just like a, a healthy kind of uh, collaborative attitude. Yeah, uh, it certainly is that with him. And uh, it is an indie film. It is an indie film, you're right. It's important to note that it's indie in the sense that one comes across the Atlantic with his editing machine, which is his, you know, his box of uh, troopers. And he's, he's, this time he had his, one of his right-hand men, a guy called Todd Halliwell, who... Very nice man who kind of ran second unit with the DOPI shows, and that worked out okay. And um, we didn't really have any clashes at all as such. It worked very, very well. And it, I, the only thing I think was slightly a process that had to, we had to go through on Rush was um, the way I used these smaller cameras, cause, which I'm used to. And I'm used to some using, because of the kind of films I've done, Mike, I'm used to working more in sort of smaller stories or expressive, expressive cameras, art cinema, and lots of funny things, which one perhaps hasn't done. And it took a while for him to sort of understand. He was open-minded and liked it, but it took a while for him to actually fundamentally understand and understand how to utilize these smaller cameras. Uh, and it also took a while for his editorial machine to get it under their skin and feel, feel it. And they're lovely people. I'm working with the same people now today, and we're talking about it, and I'm doing similar things. But it's just something you just have to go through to get used to, and that was a process on, you know, during editorial that just had to slowly grow. I actually want to ask you now if I could move away from the race car racing because I'm sure everyone you talk to is going to want to talk about the cars. But I'm really interested in how you lit the two characters and how you decided to to basically frame and block them and, and the environment you place them in away from the track because so much of the film is about right. the relationship and what drives the men. Can you talk to me about how you approach yeah. lensing them away yeah. from the track? Yeah, the first thing I said to Ron in my first conversation with him, having read it, I was sitting in with sand in my hair on, on the beach in Nice, and I went up to a mate's house and had an internet connection and did a cyber, com- you know, uh, Skype conversation with Ron and with Andrew Eaton, who's a lovely indie producer, our producer. And one of the first things I talked to him about 
which he, I could feel he wasn't used to, actually. He wasn't used to these kind of conversations with cinematographers. And I said, I regarded Hunt, you know, of all I knew of, of Hunt and his sexuality and his, his, his bombastic wolf-like nature, his attraction and everything. I, I imagined him like an animal in a cage. The camera should allow to push to the edge of the frame and we'd have to go with him and chase him and not lock him in. But let him bang against the walls of the frame like an animal, you know. I kept moving. I tried to. I wanted the camera to move more, not say wildly, not fundamentally wildly and wobbly, but just let this this beast in the cage move, and we would have to try and keep up with him. That was the basic, fundamental, visual recipe I had for James Hunt's um, in the dramatic scenes of the film. Louder is a completely different kettle of fish. And when you cut to his first dramatic scene where he's standing in front of the mirror and he's doing his pie and he's going to meet his horrible, balding, Easter egg-like uncle and ask for money and he gets refused. And you, you get to know how Louder... Everything about Louder in this film is linear. It's, it's linear strategies. Louder's a man who gets up in the morning, has a plan, he has a plan, he still has a plan today. And you can't not finish a sentence with him. He's, he's that kind of person of nature. Uh, he he wants answers. He looks for answers, and his whole motor racing career was based on precision and accurate dart-like uh, attitude. And so I wanted the camera with him to track either linear or sideways, but linear movements at all times with louder. And those are two. I don't really see it or feel it or whether it prevails in the film, but that's the fundamental design, the camera design, and the psychology of what the cameras have to do around those two people. And that only really loosens up when Louder starts getting into psychological bad states, you know, in the hospital, the POV work when he's coming in from the accident. And then as he gets into Monza, still linear, but when he gets to Fuji, things, things are out of order. And, you know, if that's the basic line, because Louder is that for me. And as a camera, that means for me, my language in that is linear movements, focused, going towards something. And uh, I, remember, I remember Ron listening to me there, and it was his early in our relationship, way before shooting, and I remember thinking, well, he wasn't used to that kind of conversation. Well, it's nothing genius about it, it's a normal way, but he wasn't used to speaking to some of the And that bond, we bond on things like that, it's really nice. He takes it on board, thinks about it. Yeah. He says it, you know, he says, that's interesting. You also seem to sort of uh, interestingly stack up the frame in in especially some of Hunt's stuff and and in their confrontations. And I I don't know, there, there are tones, obviously, when it gets to like, near sort of uh, the more official side of the racing. There, there's stuff that has a hint of a kind of a documentary sort of seek and find. Yeah. Um, I just wonder if you could talk about that because the, that, that... Yeah, apart from the racing camera and the onboards, a very important part of the racing is based on my own experience of motor racing, short as it was, where I used to watch these drivers. I used to stand there with my lollipop in my hand, you know, and think, what am I doing here at age 15? watching these guys go around the corners and it's like a sexy, extraordinary sort of visual panache event, but these guys get killed all the time. And what am I doing here? Am I waiting for somebody to have an accident? Am I bored with seeing a car going at speed just around the corner? I was, I was taken by the event, impressed it, but I was deeply confused by it at a young age. And it was when I was quite young and beginning to go to out myself, you know, I, I went out with this South African mate of mine. I remember he used to take me to motor racing and, and I remember that ambivalent feeling. It was almost like, and, you know, occasionally you hear a horrible bang, but not much more than that. You know somebody was hurt. You'd smell the rubber, you'd smell the oil. And I, well, building on that, I remember that you're standing in the audience, obviously, and you can't quite see, and you've paid to come see something. And then you're, 
your nature is saying, oh, what can I see over there? I can't quite see it. And the same thing with the cameras. If you look at the horrible history of some crashes, uh, which is terrible, uh, the cameras aren't particularly good. They're ch chasing, struggling. The lens is usually wrong at that time because that's the nature of life and death. Fatality happens you know, when you least expect it. The only existing footage for Lauda's accident, which is a deeply disturbing thing, a deeply disturbing event, and the, the images portray that, is a, a little piece of Super 8 footage, which you can find on the net, shot by an eight-year-old who just happened to be there. You know, Again, like I was saying, you could be standing there with your ice cream and your, your instamatic or whatever, and, and suddenly he's in this forest, this paradise little forest on that famous curve in Nürburgring, and suddenly this car comes around the corner and just veers off, and this horrendous crash takes place. And he frames it remarkably well for a young, young kid. And I based the whole visual portrayal of that hour louder crash on that take. And I built it up around that. And I actually put the Super 8 kid in the, in a shot while I shoot back to the woods at this little guy filming it. Because I wanted the element of voyeurism in the, in the film. Because um, I find that interesting. And so uh, that is another example, actually, literal, literal example of where try to base as much as possible on what actually happened. And the whole the whole crash itself is plotted out precisely according to what happened. I even traveled the track at night at 100 miles an hour just to sort of feel the sort of odd atmosphere of Nürburgring, which is the graveyard, as they called it. And it is a very scary place, and it's taken a lot of lives together in Monza. And I took a motivation driver. I had gone to drive me around in sleet at night without lights, with cameras on the front of the car. It was a little project. Project I had of my own just to see what it looked like. So funny. But um, I stood there on the site at night and just felt the place. And you feel, even though you know you're making a film and your, your fantasy runs wild and your imagination runs and you know you're in that world of drama, it was interesting standing on the spot and knowing this is where Loud and he died. And it all goes into your sort of backbone as an artist and helps you to sort of structures, images in your head, I think. Um, but we, we did lock that in exactly according to how it was. So there are um, other characters, obviously, other than the, than, uh, than Hunt and Nicolata in the film, um, but these are the two main uh, characters. But, I mean, clearly there's this sort of playboy aspect to, I think, um, in fact, Ron Howard said that it was a period when cars were dangerous and sex was safe, and I thought it was very funny, but... Um, yeah, you, you had yeah, to also yeah. capture this environment of a sort of a hedonistic kind of vibe and that energy. And I was just wondering, like, uh, again, way away from the racing, like, was it hard to switch gears to be filming in a nightclub or, you know, whatever it else? Uh, because it'd be so much focus it's on funny. the It's funny because of the very, very first scene we shot in pre-shoots was the nightclub scene where he held his, held his speech at the Formula 3 awards with the globe, the dancing, and Lauda's got to drive. You know, it's that's the very first scene we shot. I'm thinking, well, we nailed that. Okay, it was kind of bluey and yellowy and 70s. I shot it mostly on, I shot it on the Alexa and the Canon with these old lenses. And I remember thinking, well, we nailed that. That looked pretty good. And, and, that, and we basically shot the film the following way. We shot basically six or seven weeks, or eight or nine weeks of drama but with a little bit of little bit of racing because the editors needed a little bit of racing just to cut something, you know, to have yep. a feeling of rhythm in the film. So we shot a bit of the uh, Crystal Palace stuff. We knocked that out, but not all of it, just some of the London stuff. We shot little beats from Brands Hatch, little bits, beats of test driving. Uh, so I just to get a little bit of driving in there and 
so the editors had a rhythm thing in the box, in the table. But um, we shot six or seven weeks without difficulty of drama, getting the bass. I think it actually helps the crew, helps me, helps everybody to feel the character developing. Uh, so we weren't just making a race movie because Ron and I were never going to do anything like it's just a sports movie because nothing interest, interest, interests me less anyway. Uh, go and see the bloody sport, you know, and the lens mm. is different, the whole atmosphere is different. This was a drama, as you said, from the beginning, and it always was. And so I think it was quite a natural way to do it, that we concentrate on the drama first, and then we had a five-week period at the end, which was havoc, uh, where the budget really got eaten because they had to bring in more cameras, more gear, more techno- technology to get the actual racing really nailed. But that all came at the end. It was it was partly economy, partly the danger. It was complicated, and we had to go at it in one block. And the, the crew doubled, and I had a lot of lot of you know lot of lot of stuff to do. So it was it was broken down into that reason also economically. I think for the producers to make able to make it work. You know? So as I understand it, the uh, for obvious safety reasons, the the main lead actors did do some driving, but they were what, in Formula 3 cars modded to look like Formula 1? Did you have any issues yeah, in trying to had, cut that in and make it look good? No, basically we had Formula 3 cars that had stripped right down, and then you look at the Formula 1 cars, and early on in design, you, we could make our budget work to build ultimately six replicas, which are all Formula 3 cars, which move fast enough anyway, but not as fast, but they move fast. As a camera, and they are then revamped with um, Formula One chassis, you know, so the cars made, and they were made at first great expense, but that was the way to do it. So, so we had Formula Three cars uh, that we could then own; they were ours, we could own, and we can work with them as we wanted to. And we put, you know, we I could drill them and mutilate and affect them in any way I wanted to, so they became onboard tracking vehicles, you know, and I could drill through them and put camera recording mechanisms inside them, underneath them and everything, and they became my work base. And I was all over those cars. And that's how we managed to do it. And we had occasional days, big we'd have 18 historic Formula One cars come in with their owners, you know, and they could drive play fast, they didn't, because they, they owned them and they're worth millions and millions of pounds and we can't damage them. But we had them on goodwill, really, for some big days. And otherwise we had had the had to um, drop in extra cars sometimes if we didn't have them. So when you got to the grade, when you got to the grade, I mean, presumably everything was recorded on set on Codex, I think, and you said in RAW. So you did have a lot of yeah. grading latitude. What, where did you want to go with it in the grade? Was it, did you feel like you had most of the modelling of the light right, and you just needed to look at the sort of tint and hues, or was it more you wanted to get in there and help with some of the modelling that wasn't possible in terms of what you got on the day? Uh, I mean, what what Formula One cars are to motor racing, I am to in my own little world to grading. I consider artistically grading the space where I can get my teeth into it. Um, I obviously try and do as much as I can up front and, and I know why I'm going with the material on set. But when I finally get artistic control in the grading and can be let, left to my own demise, I, I got it hard. And this was a film I was always going to go out hard, even though I got a lot of it done in camera. But yeah, the, space, the basics for me on this one was latitude first up front to get the amounts of material, but in a resolution and in a, in a style and a look that I wanted as best I could. And then I had to marry, basically, in three weeks of grading, I had to marry five or six different formats together with the archive, which I knew I was, I'd already done, but I had to marry it in an appropriate palette that I wanted to be the film. And that that was hard work, but very enjoyable. And I, I, amazingly, the Americans never bothered me. They left me alone. And I think the reason for that is because uh, before we started shooting, I'd I created the look 
and we'd agreed on the look, and it was pretty radical for Ron. He'd never made a film looking like that, using that kind of technology, and it was approved. And uh, it seemed to me that's what I was there for, to take him somewhere else. And I had a 2K Christie projector and a cinema on wheels following me around Europe or England most of the time. And in Germany, when we were shooting with two graders working around the clock on the dailies to make the stuff look right, so there were no surprises, you know, through editorial to, to final grading. There was no transition. I just had to make it look roughly a bit better and more controlled than I did during the dailies. I knocked the dailies really to hell, so they looked, they looked like this anyway. Very, very radical. And um, that was a big moment. I had to spend a lot of time in that cinema during the first three weeks to train the greatest art because I hadn't worked with them before. They didn't know me and they didn't know exactly where I wanted to go. But I got them there. And then the dailies were fine and the, the producers were all happy. Then we came into the grade. It was marrying these formats off and extending much further the, the in-camera aberrations and flares and effects and, um, and then forming it all together in the palette. I wanted, based on really very, very, very the most sexy looking of the 70s Monaco, well, you know, bright, abstract, motor racing camera stuff. And um, that was the task for me. That's what I wanted to do. And I was left alone to do it. And I worked with Adam Glassman in London, the CS3. I've worked with him before on Eagle of the Ninth. He's a great grader. Uh, Jody Johnson in Post, again, worked very tightly with him. He was very, very supportive and understood what I wanted to do. And... Also, keeping him informed helped him to understand that to what degree of resolution he had to work sometimes in 2D or 3D in the background and what it needed because some of these lenses were so deliberately deteriorated and physical and struggling, you know. And then the whole language just came together in a, in a palette, in a post. It was a, you know, all these formats mixing together and massive uh, layers in the grade. I'm pretty, I'm pretty nasty in the grade. I'm quite physical, and, but I, that's what I think grading should be all about. Can I ask you an odd question for a cinematographer or director of photography to ask? But when I've stood at a Formula One track, the overwhelming response I have is how bloody loud it is. It, I mean, I know mm. this is a weird question, but like from a because you're obviously filming and, and and we're talking about audio, but like was there oh, any definitely. notion of like trying to get that? I don't know how to put this, but like the loudness into the footage, or was that why you were trying not to have it too polished in terms of the? of the stability and framing because it just is like an overwhelmingly loud experience. No, it's hectic. I mean, the word is, the South Africans use that word a lot more than us, but it's seriously hectic and demonic and scary. And when you're on the ground in the pits and all the grid starts, when those cars are about to go, the, the whole world is shaking. Uh, it's incredibly loud and people are holding their heads. And when the helmet goes on louder or the times I come at one time, you know, the sound goes away, you know what I mean? They shut it out. They shut it down. They look at the lights. They're ready to go. And I, we're in different little moments in the film. We try to remember that, but we're deeply, fundamentally, deeply affected by it. When we when we had those days where the historic Formula One cars came in, and we only had a few of them because we were only actually allowed that many days. We just can't even drive Formula One in many places in Britain today because the locals complain it's banned. The noises are so terrible. Right. But uh, the Formula Threes are slightly quieter, but they're still noisy. But you're right. The screams and the howling is heard from miles away, and it does affect you. And then the concentration you have, you, you know, apart from being quite uncomfortable, it affects the physical nature. You know, you've got these beautiful girls standing in sweat, mini skirts, holding onto their ears. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? But that's that's what it's like. It's very, it does affect. And the sound is, Danny has done quite a good job. He's got the growling personalities of those cars. He's worked pretty hard on sound. It's pretty good work he did. And combined with that, with the it's the onboard cameras that I put on those cameras and how they move around on camera at speed as well. One of my favorite elements in the film, which is only there in places, it only has to be there in places, is a shot 
on the grid start in Nürburgring where the cars at speed are grid where nobody can stand there because you die. But I've got a remote control camera on the back of a motor racing car right down the ground level, which looks starts on the back of the engine and then pans around to the the, the grid the cars behind them chasing him. And it's a movement at speed. And I've got slider cameras which I've built my crypt spent months building so that I could travel around in front of uh, the cars in some story beats, looking back at them, strapped in at 120 miles an hour, and I've got a remote, almost model air kit, um, three-axis head that I can move these small cameras on sliders on front of the, on the front of the car. So I'm doing story beats. I've got the story beat in my head, and I've got an AD next to me saying, "This is where he tries to overtake," and I'm whipping the camera around on the camera, which is was a bit in Frankenheimer spirit, but I was a bit more physical about it, and I had smaller cameras, obviously. But. Things like that I've enjoyed doing. I think that's going into, I think the audience are affected by it. I don't think sometimes know what they've seen. I think that's providing this kind of extremely physical, potentially violent and extremely attractive, strange world of motor racing. So you, you said before that you'd moved on to a new film with Ron Howard. And I guess my question is, how much have you taken anything from this film forward into the sort of approach to that? Or are you just starting over because it's a completely different subject matter. I mean, in other words... Ah, new story. New story, new... New, new, new approach. Alphabet. Yeah. New story, new alphabet. <laughs> well, look, I really look forward to uh, to seeing what comes of that, but certainly for now, we have Rush to enjoy, and uh, and it's a cracker of a film. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm glad you're out here. Really brilliant. I'm so really congratulations. Good. It's uh, just... I just love seeing your work, so thanks for taking time to talk to us. Very well. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye. So, Dragon, where uh, where's yours, Mike? Is that here? Is that <laughs> Shifting is it on your... to uh, Red News, yes. Is it I do so not have a Dragon. I was just looking for it before when I walked Take. in. No? No. no. So, in the, in the surface thing that we're going to hear coming up from the Diamond Brothers, he actually picks up the Red at one point and says, this is the Red uh, that these guys have shot. This thing. There's only five of these in the world. Did you hear that? Uh, ten of them in the world. I think he's talking about the uh, carbon fibre. Oh, okay. The That's carbon fibre epic. Which, so, I was thinking, uh, really? Yeah. Yeah, um, fifty thousand dollars, and uh, you uh, what well, to to gain a pound, and I think it's a magnesium mount instead of the titanium mount. So, very cool. I can see the uh, the use for it. Um, I mean, I think it's about another twenty grand on top of uh, a uh, price of a regular dragon. So, hey, you know, for some people, that's definitely going to be it. Again, maybe it's a rental. It's a probably a rental, or a beautiful rental item. Now, you were you were wanting a an epic upgrade and I think if I'm not mistaken because you haven't got one you've kind of spent that money at least you're about to drop that money on Canon gear right uh well I still definitely will I still definitely want to um get the dragon I'm still okay. got, got my name down for that but yeah in the meantime I I did uh I did a f- about 10 or 12 spots a couple of weeks or so ago on the 1DC it wasn't mine it was uh Producer decided to buy it and look, liked the look of it, and I was kind of like, oh, must we? I've so been scowling on this camera for forever. And I still, you know, I think there's still some definitely some issues with it. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's still a camera that should not be called a cinema. It should not have the red cine badge on it. It is not a digital cinema camera. It has much higher... Cine capabilities than the 5D Mark III, shall we say? Okay, so this so, is a this is a 4K camera that uh, records to yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, 4K capable camera, full frame sensor, taller one series body, 
so what did I like about it? First of all, why am I why am I thinking about it? Well, first firstly, it's the image quality difference between from a uh, 5D Mark yeah. III or two to the 1DC is is quite 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 astounding. It's oh, really? very it's very sharp, a much nicer sort of color detail. Basically, you're dealing with exactly the same. It's exactly the same codec. If you're shooting, if you're shooting, obviously it shoots 4K. But you, you, basically, for what I'm probably going to use, it is shoot 1080. Um, but in its 1080 mode, uh, it shoots exactly the same codec as the 5D Mark III does. But it does twice the data rate. So and right. that gives you a much nicer image, much so, much sort of cleaner skin tones, less muddiness. And in, because it is, even I guess they're probably starting with the same pixel count of, 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 of a, or similar pixel count of a, a sensor. Basically, just the way it's it's creating 1080, it just creates a much sharper, much sharper image. You don't, even with the 5D Mark III, is still, uh, you know, much cleaner in the blacks. This is still much cleaner again. You can, um, you can, can, can lift stuff up like nobody's business that you can do with the Did 5D Did you shoot the log gamma kind of? No, no. I'm still trying to work, work, work that out, whether the C log, you can use that in 1080 or whether that's a 4K only thing. I'm not quite sure. I think we sort of did cinema modes, and I think we didn't quite get the best out of it in terms of the highlights. The highlights did seem to roll off a little bit a little bit sharper than I would like in the 5D. But, but if you're shooting 1080p, you can go up to like 60 frames a second, right? Yeah, I think so. You'll do 60 in 1080, which I think with the 5D Mark III, you still restrict. You jump, you jump down to 10, 720 to do to do. And is to it do that comparable in terms of ISO, or is it better than the 5D and ISO? Uh it's comparable. I think it's probably probably slightly. Probably slightly better in so much as that the noise floor down the bottom. You just don't get any. You know, you lift a 5D image. Uh, yeah. If it's you've underexposed it a bit, you lift it, and you just, there's still even the Mark III. There's still a whole lot of junk and artifact and stuff in there. You really gets quite messy quite quite quickly. But I think partly because it's different sensor, whole different sort of sensor engine, and it is also uh, uh, well, it's twice the price, right? If not more than oh, twice the well, price. That, that's, 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 I'll put that. That's in the negative side. But <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the positive side. It'll do 50, 60p at at full re- at, at at 1080. It will do for it will do 4k, uh, but that's also in the negative side. Is the fact that it is it'll do full frame at 1080, but when you jump to 4k, it crops down. Now it crops down, not doesn't go all the way to Super 35. It's actually maybe about the size of a dragon, maybe slightly larger than dragon size crop. So it's still it's you still got a larger field of view, a larger a larger larger Im- uh, a larger sort of uh, full frame look than than say Epic or Dragon is, but um, so uh, I just wish it was. A f- I just wish it would do 4K at full frame because so that's that's still a bit of a that's still a bit of a unicorn out there. It's four oh nine six by twenty one sixty in 4K. Mm-hmm. So it's true, a true, trueish 4K. Um, so I liked all that. I like definitely like the, it's a lot cleaner and sharper. And uh, what I don't like is the fact that I still don't think I, 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 it doesn't have an electronic viewfinder. I've said that a thousand times. It doesn't. Uh, it it um, is definitely um, not a proper. None of these sort of DSLRs you can can call them a cine camera in so much as that you change. The it very much thinks like a stills camera in so much as you have to change your shutter speed and your 
uh, frame rate independently. You know, it's nothing like a Scarlet or whatever or Alexa where you can basically have like a relative shutter angle. If you go to 50 or 60, you still need to then think about changing your shutter speed to match it so you don't break the 1080 rule. They still work independently, whereas I think a true cinema camera, you could say, put my shutter into relative mode. So whatever frame rate I go, just keep me locked into 1080 or tighter. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's a bit of an, that, that, that's still a bit of a, you know, something we have to put up with. But, uh, I think in the interim, until I'm waiting for Dragon, it's, it's, it's better than the 5D, much better than the 5D Mark III. Definitely got its issues. I still wish it would be cheaper. I think they've just had a price drop now. It's about 10K, 10K-ish. Um, I think maybe dropped, dropped 10% or so, at least here at the moment. I presume that will follow worldwide, perhaps. I still think it's overpriced. Um, it's it's a piece of tech they had existing, which they've shoehorned into the cinema line. But uh, yeah, I think I'll yeah I think there's a couple of jobs I can I can get it onto. So I think I will. So watch this space. I I want to explore the whole C log thing a bit more and see if I can improve the uh, highlight roll off. So just to be clear about this, you don't have to jump straight from 4K to 1920 by 1080, right? You can do the super 35 modes, which will shoot 24, 30. Mm. I mean, there's like yes. you can only shoot 24 at 4K, but you, there's some there's a the S35 mode between the 4K and the 1920 by 1080. Mm. The, the 1920 by 1080 you do go up to but the but Super 35 is yeah. So 4K is larger when it shoots 4K. That's larger than Super 35. That's like dragon size in terms of field. We're talking basically just field of view, right? In terms of physical yeah. physical sensor sensor size. Uh, 10, 1080p is the largest because it'll do a full frame just like a 5D will. When you go to 4K, it crops in a little bit, but not all the way to, like, say, Super 35 7D land. But then I think, yes, there is then the Super 35. I haven't explored that really because it's then, I think, another a further sensor crop in to more like 7D kind of red one-ish Alexa territory, hmm. which is bumped down again. So... Uh, yeah, and I think the other the other issue with the 4K is that there is no there's no overcranking whatsoever. You know, when you go to 4K mode, it crops you in, and the fastest I think you can go is maybe 30 30p, 25p, something like that. Right, but you are going to buy one. Oh, I believe so. Yes. Okay. Once just, I get just so you know, there is a paper that's come out from Sydney University that older people make more irrational uh, <laughs> decision making. And that uh, older adults oh, are more likely sorry. to make poor financial decisions than, yeah, that's, uh, than that, In my case, that is not an age thing. I've been okay. making irrational Good decisions uh, for quite some time now. Okay. But thanks for bringing that up. No problem. No problem, my friend. Um, okay. Well, so hopefully you'll still have some money left for your Dragon upgrade whenever that comes along. It is a bit of bloody annoying, though. I've got to say, I'm yeah. kind of over hearing about Dragon upgrades. Like, they either ship or they don't ship. Yeah. But. As you said before, the frustration there is because it's so good. The more I see... As it unveils, it is an outstanding upgrade, and that's what makes it frustrating. If it was shit, no one would care. We would have all moved on ages ago. Uh, I think half the audience here listening to this show will, is begging for um, Dragon to uh, ship it properly, just so I can shut the fuck up. There you go. There you go. Hey, there, you um, go. there goes that so, green tag. So. Uh, so let's just uh, round this out before we jump over to the Diamond Brothers to explain that there is this uh, uh, carbon fiber magnesium one and there's the mount. So these are the two different things we're talking about and there's the dragon. And not all these things are interconnected in the sense that you yes. can have the mount, 
that it's not on a dragon. Yeah, so if you drop $50,000 for your carbon fiber dragon, uh, you get the magnesium mount, uh, the side SSD, because the whole body, including the side SSD module, is all carbon fiber shelled. Um, and the mount, of course, there's there's a lot of heft in a titanium mount. It's beautiful, but, um, you know, magnesium is, I guess, is lighter again. So, um, yeah, you get the full body and SSD and everything, uh, with, 50K. With carbon fiber rods, I was always worried about shattering them. I wonder um, if this is as it's robust. It's an interesting... I don't know an awful lot about carbon fiber. I love it, but it's uh, it, it's um, I guess it's more certainly more going to be need to be babied a bit more because it's lighter. Um, it maybe has a bit more flex. Uh, I think I heard someone saying that it actually uh, because it actually will absorb moisture. In that it can actually f- flex and change its. Um, if it gets wet, I think it can, it can absorb moisture and actually expand to humidity. Well, you know what? We are doing uh, this new term, which has just been announced at FXPHD. We're doing an entire grip course, and that entire grip course uh, is going to be looking at everything about moving cameras. So I think that um, why don't I just investigate that as part of the grip course? Because. Clearly, uh, lightweight gear is awesome, but not if it comes at the risk of uh, being, you know, less robust on set. It could be full of shit. It's uh, very occasionally it's happened in the past, and uh, I'm sure I'll be told different. But uh, yeah, I'll be keen to keen to hear, as I am to hear to see your uh, your new course, which I guess has just been announced well, actually, today. It's, it's yes, actually, it's myself with Ben Allen, DOP Ben Allen, yep. who is. Uh, did our lighting course, and yes, we're having a lot of fun. In fact, we've even, as you'll see, if you look at the uh, trailer on the next episode of FX Guide TV or just over at fxphd.com, uh, we had a lot of fun with our trailer, just mucking around with movies and, well, actually not movies, like a do-it-yourself movie, really. Uh, steady cams, rigs, yeah, helicopters, just a ball. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got to tell you, Jason, it's one of the best parts of my job, just being able to do funky, cool stuff like this. Yeah, uh, And Ben is such a great guy. He's such a good DOP. Excellent. I'll look forward to that. But anyway, my point is we'll be checking out the carbon fiber stuff because that's something that that lightweight stuff. And I'll just find out what some of the experiences are. We're working with some um, senior grips who are doing stuff all over the place. They'd know. Um, So we'll just see if we can find out about it. But anyway, let's cross over to New York and uh, hook up with uh, Jason Diamond, who's waiting, I believe, on the line for us now, uh, having stayed up on his birthday. So, Jason, happy birthday. Thank you very much. So, the question we want to know is, when is your brother's birthday? Um, 18 minutes after mine. Ah, good. I'm glad we're speaking to the elder brother. Well, congratulations, my friend. How are you? I'm good. So, we hear you've had some cool toys to play with over there. What have, what have you had recently? Um, well, we have been uh, playing with a certain dragon. Uh, yes. If uh, it does, doesn't sound too weird. <laughs> Yes. And having a dragon party, that doesn't sound weirder. You haven't had to imagine dragons. You and still not many others. Yeah, well... Um, Don't get me started. Moving on. We were lucky enough to get ours um, as a loner, of course, um, because we were doing some work last weekend, or whatever, not the weekend that just passed, but the previous weekend with uh, Microsoft and Assimilate as part of their um, Surface 2 launch uh, and assimilate Scratch Play software, which 
um, you know, will play raw files as or well, any file that Scratch will play, which is pretty much anything. Um, but it's pretty it's pretty cool to be able to play uh, you know, an R three D Dragon R three D on a little tablet. Yeah, so just to get people up to speed, um, the Surface Two launch happened. Obviously, the Surface Two is a much more powerful version of Surface. In fact, it's really a PC and a tablet. And so there are a lot of advantages, of course, of being on set and having the power of being able to process files PC-wise, but walk around with only the form factor of a tablet. And just to sort of show how powerful it was, Microsoft, as part of their official launch, had you behind a curtain at their launch showing uh, R3D files being processed, because obviously processing R3D files is fairly computationally expensive. Um, how did you get involved in that in the first instance? I mean, it's a great thing to be involved with. Um, well, we have a long relationship with Assimilate, um, we got introduced to Assimilate through Emery Wells at Catabatic back in 2008 when we first got our Red One. And we, at the time, as you know, it was probably um, the only app that could natively process um, R3Ds, or at least that early. They were they were pretty deep in with the Red Camp, and, and they were first out of the gate with most of the... SDKs and stuff and we like the product and over the years have you know been had a close relationship with them so when Microsoft asked them to provide you know uh, directors filmmakers um, that could benefit from this program they were working on uh, both um, from a hardware perspective for Microsoft and the scratch play from assimilate assimilate was generous enough and gracious enough to uh, ask us to do it. We were pretty excited. Yeah. So like, let's discuss that for a second because before we get back to the Dragon, I just want to discuss the uh, Scratch situation. So I was a long-time Scratch user. In fact, I, I really uh, worked hard with it, um, especially in the early days. But I moved away from it because about a year or so ago, um, I got a technology peek as to what was coming down the pipe and it was incredibly underwhelming. And more than that, it was just... I, I <laughs> I kind of said that I thought it was a bit underwhelming and got a bit of a hostile reaction from it. So I stopped using um, Scratch Assimilate. And uh, the other reason that I did that is that a lot of other companies seem to have caught up in terms of, uh, like even Premiere, playing R3D files. So where is Scratch today and what's the difference between Scratch and Scratch Play? Um, well, we don't, we don't have licenses of... of full scratch um since we don't do a ton of color work ourselves right um because we're always out in the field doing shooting and and posting and whatever um but emery's been using scratch you know as his main system and for what we've for what we've needed him to do with it 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 performs great um i again i'm not a colorist per se so so all the doodads and and knobs and things that get switched around from app to app don't mean anything to me really but um, you know, Scratch Play is free, and that's cool. But the difference between Scratch and Scratch Play is that Scratch Play will is the engine, uh, if if you will, of Scratch. So it'll play all the formats that Scratch, will, the full versions of Scratch, will play. Uh, but it's free, and it and it maintains the construct nature. Um, it's CDL compliant, um, and it lets you export. Uh, I think. DPXs and TIFFs and JPEGs, I believe. So, so it's not like a DIT station, right? Or I mean, rather, you could use it on any computer. But for us, we've been using it on the Surface as as more of a mobile setup 
Yeah, so so at the play level, I think it's actually $5 to get the ad-free version. You're basically talking about something that you can have on, um, say, your Surface versus, say, I don't know, QuickTime Pro or, or sort of an RV or something else. Um, and that's the kind of the play stuff back. Though in the case of play, it has uh, LUT support, both 1D and 3D LUTs and right. other color stuff that's uh, good, as you mentioned, like the CDL support. And obviously something like a QuickTime Pro or whatever isn't going to be able to open R3D files. Uh, but it's more than that. Like they also do ARRI um, uh, ISO support and a bunch of other stuff and VectorScope. So that's, that's play and that's great. And then, as you say, uh, Scratch is more like a grading station, probably comparable to uh, uh, DaVinci. But yeah. let's and of course, of course, I would imagine you know Assimilate wants you to be able to pass those projects on to a fuller, you know, a full version of Scratch, too. So if I was on set and I was messing around, I could pass those files up to Scratch, uh, even constructs that I had of files, and it would all move forward. So I mean, you know, that's just a forward, that's just a forward moving vertical. But right. you could then still run on the surface, right? You could still run the full version on the surface. Just to give yourself uh, some Yeah, more. I would imagine you could. I mean, the GPU isn't that strong, you know, in terms of processing, but I have I have Media Composer running on mine. I have um, you know, a number of other regular quote-unquote computer apps running on it that run fine. Yeah, cuz the Surface uh, Pro or the 2 whatever it is 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 pretty pretty gutsy in terms of computational power for what yeah, it's is an i5 yeah for what is meant to be obviously um you know it used to be that tablets were were way behind the uh the eight ball and you would get files on there through what it has isb um a usb3 right or right yeah wi-fi US- as well but yeah use- but usb3 i mean you could i can hook the red reader right up to it if i want right because mm-hmm. that's the other problem with an ipad is you don't have any sort of like usb connections on it or thunderbolt connections yeah. it just has its apple Docking connection. Only yeah, listen, I still have an iPad. It's not an either or thing. I just think there's there's tools for the for the tool set, and sometimes one works and sometimes the other works. You know. But let's swing back to the the uh, shooting stuff. And uh, as part of this whole project, as you said, you got to play with a dragon. Now, was it a normal dragon? I got a feeling you had a carbon fiber diamond clad diamond <laughs> brothers wonder version in unatanium, right? Yes, they made us our own uh, diamond-clad version. It was five hundred pounds. No, beautiful. Um, no, those were the, the 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 ones that they had there. Um, the carbon fiber one was. Uh, I don't even know if it. it we didn't attempt to turn it on because uh, uh, Red uh, Brian Henderson from Red was there, and he was sort of controlling that body. It was a display body. I, I don't know if it turned on. I would imagine it would. Um, it was the right weight. You know, definitely the throw me the idol, I'll throw you the whip. You know, did you pick it up? Yeah, yeah, we were holding it. Yeah, no, we were holding it. It, it looked, it had the sensor in it, and you know, it looked uh, and felt like a like a proper production body. So that's why I was saying I'm, I would imagine it it was a working body. We just didn't uh, attempt to plug anything into it because I mean, there's nothing different about it other than it's magnesium and and carbon fiber. I just wondered if it felt twenty thousand dollars lighter. Um, no, not if $20,000 weighs a pound, but, but you know, that's $20,000 weighs a pound. Would that would really be uh, a good thing, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. If you drop $20,000 and an Epic carbon Epic off the, uh, roof, which would hit first. (laughs) Um, Your wallet, your wallet gets uh, a pound lighter and the camera gets a pound. Oh, no, your wallet gets a pound. No, they both get a pound lighter. 
your personal terminal velocity changed. Okay, so getting back to shooting with the uh, dragon, what were you shooting? Uh, so we we got the camera on noon on a Saturday, and so we had uh, not to give caveats here, but we had a memorial for a friend Saturday night that had been in the planning for a while. So we had like four hours on Saturday, and then we had a bunch of Microsoft events on Sunday. So we had about four hours on Sunday, and then we had to send it back on Monday. So over those two four-hour shooting times, we had to get up to speed on on anything new with the camera in terms of you know how it handled whatever it was we were pointing it at and trying to shoot something worth looking at. So on the first day, we just sort of we sort of hung around outside and tried to get some outside stuff and some subway stuff. Cause you know, if you're going to mess around with a camera, you got to do it in the subway at yep. least partly. Absolutely. Um, so, and, and my brother and I are also huge fans of anamorphic lenses. And I really tried my hardest to get my hands on a set of the Hawk vintage 74s, but, and there actually was one set that had just landed in Germany at CSC in, in, New Jersey, but it would have been about $3,500 for the day, per day, just to look at them, because Vantage doesn't do any deals, yeah. and since I wasn't going to spend 3500 or $7,000 on two days over a weekend to shoot, um, we went over to our friend Steve Gall at Duol, which is across the street from our office, and we got three lenses from his set of uh, Elite Anamorphics. Uh, I think we had the 32, the 50, and the 135, which is like a Canon. And not Canon, the camera, like a bazooka. And these are what ratio anamorphics? Two to one. Okay. So they've obviously now added a few other resolution modes to the Dragon since last I played with it, which I think only did about two to one. So now obviously they've added some stuff, full frame well, maybe. Yeah, it and took us a anamorphic. minute to figure out the new the new um os i have the new i have the new firmware on my camera because i was testing the motion mount and i had 5.xx whatever beta version and i actually really really like version 5 um that i think they just released properly as a beta um and i you know things like shortcuts to different parts of the menus and whatnot is great being able to exclude certain things from each of the sliding menus is pretty cool. Um, so you don't have to go scrolling for eight years on a thing if you know you're not going to use it. But for the 6K, not having shot 6K before, we had to do a bit of math, and there were some custom setups, and we finally found some of the, some of the framings that were hidden because of that new uh, firmware option. So we finally settled on 6K 2 to 1 anamorphic times 2 squeeze. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the vertical height is 61, or, well, the, the full anamorphic frame was 6144 by 3072. Wow. Now, obviously, you're cropping that. That's way wider than 235. Um, so we so we used a guide, used this two three five guide, to uh, crop off the sides, which was good to have for multiple reasons. Not one being that the thirty two mil didn't fully cover 
um, on the width because it's insanely wider than it needs to be because of the 6K, and it was well outside the 235 crop, so you could still reframe left and right. But we had to, at one point, we had to tape an ND to the front of it because we didn't have a map box big enough uh, for the whatever the front uh, uh, lens lens, uh, diameter is. Um, So luckily, we could tape it outside the 235. So impressed with the results? I mean, and dynamic range as well, of course, is one of the big things. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree. Given our limited time with it, I would agree. And and my fear, definitely fear of blowing anything out, you know, for uh, showing footage that has anything clipped on it, you know, is sort of a, is sort of a hangman's noose for testing cameras, you know. So I would agree with the one and a half stops over comments that have been bandied around by the couple of people that have been testing it. Um, that's conservative, right? That's like pretty much guaranteed within one to one and a half stops extra latitude. However, I think depending on your sensitivity to the noise floor and other things, you could go well beyond that. I don't mind noisy images, and by noisy, I'm not saying unusable. Like, I'm not saying ISO 12,000. Yeah, not, I'm just saying, not like, clean. we've comfortably shot at ISO 2000 on the current Epic and, and totally enjoy the results. Okay, one of the other bits bolted to the camera, I think, Jace, was the motion mount, which is a bit of kit I've been very keen on, on getting my hands on. But uh, I was almost going to hit the buy button until I read a bit of a gotcha, and maybe you can explain this to me, that they, uh, they don't recommend you go past four stops of ND in, in the ND mode, because obviously it has a few modes. Don't recommend going past four stops of ND if you're shooting wide open. Now, what the... That's the idea. That's the whole idea, for me at least, yeah. anyway, of using this thing. So I'm a bit sort of completely at a loss as to what this issue is, and maybe you can shed some light on it. Yeah, I was talking to Toya about that too, and, and, and he said the same thing, and I feel the same. I feel the same way. Um, you know, obviously a lot of people don't shoot wide open. There's tons of people that shoot in the five six to the five six to eight range, which is where most movies have been shot for years, and certainly a healthy you know spot on the lens to live, depending on what you're doing. Nature photography, even more so for deep focus. But um, so so we got the we got the PL motion mount first, and we went out with uh, a Master Prime to uh, again that we got from Do All. And because I don't own Master Primes, and we, and I, same thing. Like I wanted to jack the lens wide open and then just start stopping it down with the ND and seeing what happened. And once we got up to like five, six, seven, and eight stops of ND, which is what you can do in the ND only mode, we saw this really strange effect that I thought initially was something wrong with the lens, possibly. So I swapped. We had a twenty-five and a fifty, so I swapped to the fifty. And had the same problem, and then I changed the mounts back to the regular PL mount, and it was gone. Uh, so, can you describe what, I, what you're saying? That you what what it looks like is you know like when you rack focus a any lens, but let's just say a Master Prime, everything blobs out into really beautiful blurred bokeh and and 
imagery, right? And you get your nice sharp foreground yeah. and your or whatever you're focusing on and the rest goes nice and soft. So at one three specifically, uh, now my testing I would say you're safe at a five six and 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 uh, uh, lower, I guess, depending on how you think different people think of it. But five six to twenty two, you're fine. Red says four, but I still think you still kind of see it. I mean, maybe it's once you get once you know what it is, you get sensitive to it. I would say five six. They say four, but what it looks like is you see the image instead of blurring out into a nice bokeh you it kind of splits in half it kind of like if i was focusing on your face you know it would look like a layer of your face went to the left bottom left and a layer of your face went to the upper right and then it, and it was like chromatically aberrated and had this kind of weird holographic it sounds okay effect. actually <laughs> it looks awesome right it looks really cool you could totally use it but you can't use it unless you want an effect which is a problem right it's yeah. like saying oh well every time I use my camera, I get a streak filter, but I don't want a streak filter on every t- on everything, right? So, like, I don't see Fincher using that effect, per se, He's he and he loves to be at 1.3 wide open in ND. Uh, obviously, or not obviously, but from what I understand, he's using dragons and motion mounts on his new movie, so he must have figured out the sweet spot for how he likes it to work. Um, but but that's what happens. So I when I brought that up to Red, as I was testing it, they said, yeah, we're still trying to figure it out, but basically the angle of the rays coming out of the lens at 1.3 with all that ND are too steep, and they can't make it through the liquid crystal properly. And okay. I, I, don't, I, think it's a lim- I think it's a limit of physics, personally, Yeah, which may be why the Tessiv guy had his filter in front of the lens probably affects it differently because it's it's the pre-bent rays right and it's only after they come out of the rear element that that you're you're you would have that issue i would imagine i don't know enough about that science i'm just using deduction yeah okay so basically if you want to use the full uh i'm gonna say what 2.4 nd which is what uh eight stops eight stops uh then you can only basically use half of that um at without having to stop down yeah basically you can go you can keep it keep the lens wide open up to about four or so or five stops maybe of yeah ND. maybe five and it yeah. depends on how much rack focusing you're doing too because if you're not racking you're not going to see it as much so the other two modes sort of preclude you from getting into that area anyway because you have the soft shutter the two global shutter modes so you have nd only which is no global shutter just nd and it starts at one just on when the when the mount is just on and you're at the lowest ND because it always has a, a a small amount of ND. It's like a stop. It's like little a little under a stop and a half. Yeah, it's like one point four three stops um, because of just the general density of the liquid crystal and the glass and and the IR cuts and the polarization and all the shit that's happening in the mount. So you start there. And you have your one to eight stops in ND only mode. When you go to uh, soft shutter mode, you can once you get to the other two shutter modes, you can only use four stops of ND because the liquid crystal is now doing two things. Yeah, it's it's turning on and off, and it's you know creating density through voltage or however it works. So um, you're limited. 
So you'll never get into the eight stop problem with that. Um, but so to describe the two shutter modes briefly, the you have soft shutter, which is like a sine wave. So instead of being a hard on and off shutter, it sort of pulses slightly in and out, sort of more like a spinning mirror would. So some people say that's more of a cinematic look, if you want to use that term, because it or filmic, because it has that slight pulse to it. But what's really interesting, and the other, the other, the other mode is the square shutter mode. So that's just on and off. Right? Yeah, that's just global shutter. Yeah, global shutter. The other one's global shutter too. It just has a little bit of a ease on each end of the, of the on and the off. Did you see any difference with that? Did you try the soft shutter? Because it sounds interesting if it's giving it a bit more of a filmic. You do in where you comments. really see it is in, um, rolling shutter test. So what I did was. Uh, I and obviously this is extreme, but I just wanted to test it. I went to 95 frames a second at 5K, and I whipped the camera back and forth across a, a vertical beam in my office. And then when I played it back, I could see, and I did it in all three. So I did it no no shutter, soft shutter, and square shutter. In no shutter, you can see it just boom. It's just kicked over at like you know 40 degrees because um, you're maxing out the the viability of the sensor at that point between how fast it can read reset and do frame rate. Right. Yeah. So it's leaned over in soft shutter mode. It's straight up except you can see the sine wave. So at the bottom, if you have a straight line, let's say the bottom, you know, smaller than a third of the bottom is an S that comes in from the left and comes up and meets it. And then this is very a super top, quirky mount. This is a yeah, quirky at the very piece top, of kit. You see a very tiny S going out to the right. I mean, you're you're not really gonna. I mean, I'm yeah, I'm this is extreme it to the max, so I can see it. Yeah. Uh, at standard twenty three nine eight, you don't see that because it's it's not it doesn't it's not trying to catch as many frames. But in the square shutter mode, it, you get the same effect, except instead of it being a gentle curve in, it's just a kick, just an angle. You have a little angle to the left on the very bottom, and you have a little angle to the right at the very top. Um, Interesting. But, but, you know, it totally kills half-frame flashes. I had a strobe light that I bought at Radio Shack that I was just blasting in the lens, and it totally got rid of it. And uh, some people posted it on Red User some straight-up, you know, flashes that they tested, and it... And, it kills the, the half frame. So even even if it wasn't an ND issue and you were using it purely for global shutter and you sh- were shooting fashion or live music or any sort of, you know, special effect, um, you know, lighting gags, you're golden. I mean, it totally works. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing you're trying to do is you're trying to solve the problem of uh, like we're shooting gunshots and um, muzzle flashes and stuff and, you know, that right. only appear on half the frame or flashes that would only light up half the studio or you know for that matter i mean i think the rolling shutter thing is you can see it in some shots but in some shots it's there and you don't even notice it and it doesn't even bother you however it is a technical issue and can be really difficult for doing uh for doing tracking so again the global shutter would help with uh, image tracking software for doing visual effects work so there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to do it but i've got to say um i was completely unaware that you'd get these weird uh artifacts that you've been talking about and having been on set with Mr. Dyer, Mr. Wingrove here, who says gaffer tape the lens wide open, um, yes, I'm sure it's got its uses. And, 
you know. Yeah, it must have its uses. Yeah. Yeah, of course, but it's definitely no, got its sure. quirks. It, so it's a valid piece of kit. I would, for me personally, I would think uh, it's a little more of a rental house piece of kit because you're only going to need it some of the time. So I'd rather just I'd rather just rent it when I need it. And there's tons of houses in the city in New York City that'll that'll buy them, and so I'm totally cool with that. Um, plus, I'm saving my money for my dragon upgrades. Yeah, but. <laughs> Uh, the other thing is that I I also tried to do four stops of electronic ND and four stops of regular glass ND, and you still it still happens right. because you're still you're even though it's it's a little less and a little different because you're bending light in front and in back. Um, it's a little different, but it's still there. Right. Yeah, so regardless, you can't limit the light by any more than four or five stops uh, with, the, with, the, with the aperture wide open, basically. Yeah, and as you stop yeah. down, obviously, you're getting closer to being able to use a little more stops. You know, it's a little yeah. bit of a game. I think the, the takeout is then you need to grab one, need to have a play, need to see if it's going to work for you, and, yeah, maybe see, just con your local uh, rental house into buying one so you can have it for those times you're going to need it because I don't think it's going to be something everyone's going to keep on their camera for day to day. No, no. But I have to say I just love uh, being able to have Jason on the show who can talk about it firsthand because it's just the sort of stuff you don't get out of reading the brochure or looking online on the website. So that's brilliant that you uh, had a chance to talk to us about that. Thank you so much, Jason. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And uh, I'll let you go back to your birthday celebration. Say a happy birthday to your brother for us. Yes, now that it's 20 minutes Thanks. after we first yeah. wished you. And, uh, and also, um, I have a post on Red User and, and Facebook with some stills from our Dragon Shoot. And uh, we're in the process of tomorrow grading a motion piece to put up. So just keep an eye out for that. Cool. Right. Excellent. We'll put links in the show notes when it's up. Thanks I'm so sure much, by man. the time this goes to air. Okay, so uh, jumping back to before the interview, I mentioned I very, very occasionally am wrong. Um, <laughs> the 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 wonderful and highly attractive Dave Newman from GoPro piped up at me, sort of slightly, slightly um, ranting on GoPro a little bit, uh, talking m- mainly about some of the uh, the rolling shutter. Um, uh, or some aliasing actually. I think I remember doing doing a shot of like fine rigging on on sailboat and seeing a lot of uh, aliasing uh, on on 120 frames a second, which obviously is pushing shit uphill for any camera. Uh, but Dave said uh, that um, it doesn't occur with the narrow field of view mode. So if you change the field of view, you're going to get different uh, different levels of aliasing going to none. So basically, he says. Um, Aliasing or sensor binning um, to achieve 120p on the Hero 3 does not occur with the narrow field of view mode. It's quite nice, he says. I would actually underline you, that. I think the GoPro so 3 go back is a cracker a, of a camera. Play. <clears throat> I love that camera. We yeah. had a reason to shoot with the um, GoPro 2, that, that thing I was talking about before with the DOP course. Uh, yeah, actually I was thinking it's not, it won't make your, your cool camera movement kind of course, but uh, I just... I just and speaking of GoPros, I just backed this. Uh, I think when this comes out, it might still actually have seven or five or six or seven days left to go. But um, what, I what just backed a little kind of GoPro three-axis little, a tiny. I guess it's a Movi for a GoPro that's in a little hand grip thing. It's quite cool, called uh, the Easy Gimbal. 
uh and it's yeah it's about 500 bucks and yeah it's quite i'm sure i maybe mentioned a couple of a couple of episodes ago but i find i sort of bit the bullet and and and, uh, and grabbed one it won't uh ship until february uh, but uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of it was cool enough worth 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 backing. There was nothing really out there kind of like that. So yeah, I thought I'd uh, mention. How that. much did you back it for? Because you actually get one if you back it for six hundred dollars. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, I, I backed it as in please give me. I'm gonna, yeah, backed it as in give me one. <laughs> yeah, I just figured it might be quite interesting. To just permanently keep the GoPro just on that the whole time. And I'm imagining that future versions of of this uh, will no doubt uh, be compatible with perhaps future versions of, of, of GoPros, we'd like to think. I was going to say, that's the risk, isn't it? That you actually back this and between now and February when it's shipping, they actually come out with a GoPro 4 and it doesn't fit. Yeah, look, I, I've, I've mentioned it to, to the guys and I'm sure they're going to work with GoPro as much as they can or be adaptable because I think by the time hopefully by the time it ships in February any sort of future little it mainly is going to be more adaptable to other versions of of GoPro that may come out in the near future it's not something that's easily adaptable to uh, say Sony action cams or contours or any of the other cameras so it's uh, yeah more more suited to 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 GoPro which is fine because obviously that's 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 the camera that has things like the um, the ProTune, you know, and some really good, uh, uh, you know, slow-mo functions and things. So I thought it was pretty cool. And you, didn't, you weren't cool tempted guys. to back it. Sorry, you weren't tempted to back it for the uh, for the extra forty bucks, so you could get yours in a custom red, green, blue, or no. yellow version. No, I think black is the only black, black is, is the, the only color black? that cameras should be. Basically. Well, they've they've got their forty thousand dollar goal. Yeah, that is, yes, absolutely, it's backed. It's great. So it's actually going to moving on to be terrific. Don't be a digital Bolex, please, boys. I'd like to have one by February. Thanks. Otherwise, the Chinese will beat you to it anyway. Uh, have you in fact? Uh, did you in fact back the digital Bolex? <laughs> no, I just like to rip on it because it's now Cause a couple of years late. Up. <laughs> Bastard! I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> Yeah. Well, seriously, three grand, and two years later, you got zip. You got nothing. No, you know, you've got. Some you can probably tests. have a T-shirt or a nice poster or something, a gift bag, perhaps. Yeah, they should give you a T-shirt. It just says, "I backed digital Bolex. <laughs> I backed digital Bolex, <laughs> and all I got is this stupid T-shirt." <laughs> You're such a hard ass. That's what they need. Poor ah, dear. No, look, I, I'm sure it'll camera will ship. But the problem is that, you know five other old interesting alternatives will will ship in the meantime. Oh dear. Um a couple of quick little things. Uh I feel sorry for the guy that's got a book coming out about it in spring for Someone's got a book on it. Yeah. Really? Yeah, no, seriously. Idiot's a... guide to the digital bolex or something. <laughs> don't don't buy one. <laughs> oh dear. Kurt Lancaster's got a book coming out on colour grading with the digital bollocks and black magic cameras. I think that, the idiot's guide is perfect because that's who you were if you... Harsh. That's, that's, that's harsh, that is. That's who bought them. No, stopping now. Okay. Just cut that bit out. I'm not um, out. Uh, Two quick little things. Uh, Matt Duclos. Yes. Uh, actually, two things in terms of Duclos. Uh, he's just launched, he's just put on his blog... Uh, MatthewDuclos.wordpress.com 
uh, has a great great blogs worth worth subscribing to. He's put a he has a great image circle database which he's just updated, and uh, that will basically just give you a real good guide to a lot of lenses, super speeds, master primes. Uh, and their image circle, basically how much they project at the back of the lens and will you, won't you expect a vignette depending on which camera and what cameras, uh, a guide to what cameras have what image circle. Let, let's say the, you know, the Epic has a 30, uh, Epic has a 31.4 millimeter image circle and Dragon has a 34.52. It's basically getting a good idea of, of the, the sensor image, image circles of the sensor and what lenses will and won't can be expected to vignette depending on, you know, because a lot of cameras are doing sensor crop, non-sensor crop, different versions, two to one, anamorphic, da da da, what it, you know, so it's a great little guide, a free PDF. Thank you, Matt, for doing doing that. And also a shout out to him for I just bought a whole bunch of his uh, lens caps, beautiful machined lens caps. I threw away the lens cap, not threw away, but I've put them aside. The lens caps for my Canon Cine primes, because uh-huh. uh, they're. I mean, the lenses are great, but the the lens caps are just. I don't know what they was. I think they came from Tupperware. <laughs> uh, That's oh, a good description. Can I? Is it possible to love a lens cap? I don't. Yes, it is. It's beautiful, machined out of a solid piece of Delrin. They've got nice felt on the inside. So when you put them on and off, you really feel like it's uh, and actually, a really it's not, nice It's actually not fit. a stupid not thing damaging because, your lens, well, I was going to say, jam it on. Well, because, in fact, I'd got the same thing. I got a custom one drilled out for our um, 18 to 85 because the oh. plastic one, if you put the lens down, could actually bow in and touch the glass element at the front of the... Ah, so well, it's not a trivial thing that you want Delrin a rigid... Delrin is not going to do that. No. Uh, I think uh, these are 114 mil uh, and worth every cent. They're not super expensive, but uh, they're definitely worth There's a lot of work in making them. Uh, I think uh, probably there'd be a lens cap to... He does 110, uh, 95s, 80s. Uh, oh, no, the 80s are Aeroflex, Aeroflex. But he'll do 95, 162, 136, lots, lots, lots of different versions of these. Um, I'm sure there would have been one too. What, what was your What was your lens? It was the eighteen eighty five, right? Which they do a front zoom. cap for that. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, front caps. Wow, scraping the bottom of the barrel. But I just wanted to say it was an. Awesome it's not scraping thing. the bottom of the barrel. I'm saying, like, literally, you don't want to wear the front of your element simply because you had a yes, Tupperware exactly. cap on it. Exactly. No, no. I don't think there was any chance of that happening with the cannon mount. I just every time I put it on, it just felt cheap. Uh, one final little shout out for me because this is not cinema related but I just really like it. This is not really designed to be a, a Dropbox replacement but I just really like this little simple little app called Minbox M-I-N-B-O-X dot com uh, It just sits up in your menu bar this is a Mac thing just for sort of sending large files. It's a little icon up there just drag a file up, drop it send it, hit send it will send it, it when you well, Dropbox also hosts stuff on your. You have a prep, you have a separate folder. Yeah. You can share folders and things like yeah. that, and I love it. And I have a Dropbox, and I love it. And I so love Stu for putting me onto it years ago. It's fantastic. Can't do without it. And obviously, it, it then hosts. It then keeps a backup in the cloud of everything that you send. This is just a simple sort of like a droplet thing where you just drag a file, put it up into your up into your menu bar, and you can boom, hit an email address, bang, go, and it stays out of the way. It's always there if you need it, and it's a lot faster. The Dropbox is not. I don't know what service Dropbox use, but it is not fast. 
This Hang is on, much this faster thing, than doesn't that. Doesn't this thing also do raw conversion? On it also images? do conversion. You can switch that on or off. The first time mm-hmm. I sent a file, it was like a one gigabyte video file, and I sent it, and it did it in about, I don't know, a, a minute. And I went, what the hell? And I worked out that it had compression on it. So you can actually, if you're sending raw images, if you're sending large video files, you can set it to please just compress it and send a compressed version at the other end. What I haven't really done is worked out how good does that look or does it squash the size, does it, you know, uh, what's it doing? But it's definitely an interesting concept that you can grab a big full, you know, a full res 1080p, you know, four or 500 megabyte file, drop it on there and it will send a smaller version to the recipient. Uh, still something that's larger than you would want to send via email. So I just know I just think it's a really interesting little. These guys are only just a bit of a startup, and they're interested to hear from people, and you know, they're working on it, and they're ch- updating the film. The software I heard about the it because of the um, putting raw images up and getting them converted. I yeah. actually thought it was more for that than and sharing yeah, it's, photography. Yeah, it's, it's, cl- it's clever. Well, what I think, it, what I, the, the main thing I think is that that it's you can just send a file. And, you know, with Dropbox, if you want to share it, you have to wait for the little green arrow. You have to wait for it to be, the file to be updated on your side. You know what I mean? You sure. have to wait for it to upload properly and be on the server before you can then go share it. Otherwise, they'll just say, well, I can't get this file. So I think this will basically, you can drop the file on the little window and just send it. And it will send it in the background once the file is properly updated. And then you'll get an email saying, boom, it's sent. I'm sure there's probably two or three other apps out there doing this, but this happens to be something that I've come across that I thought was worthy of a, a mention, which is which is something. Okay. Anyway, yeah, S- cool. So that's it for this week. Um, actually, I think in terms of our shout-out, we should give it to David Newton, uh, Newman for his... Um Yes. His Twitter account, which is underscore... Oh, sorry. Which is David underscore Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N. And David uh, is a good guy, but also uh, we appreciate anybody that points out that we don't know something, which I'm not saying sarcastically. I actually mean it. If you guys are listening and we think we've got something yeah, wrong, we'd absolutely. love to hear. We learn so much from people sending us stuff. Yep. Um, Until people do that, I forget people actually listen to this. So thank oh. you. Uh, <laughs> next uh, next step, uh, to continuing our great chats with, with, with really good DPs. I had a fantastic chat this week uh, for next episode with John Aitchison. Uh, he is a uh, wildlife uh, cinematographer, nature, did Blue Planet, um, wow. y- you name it. He's done a lot of sort of Attenborough-style work, uh, you know, sitting on sitting on ice flows for, for months at a time. Uh, he's also worth a follow. That is John Aitchison1, so that's A-I-T-C-H-I-S-O-N-1. He's a... He's a um, a gentleman and a frequent Twitter worth follow. Worth a follow. He's uh, shooting all the time, and it was a lovely chat. And we'll have that for next ep. Can't have it anymore for this ep because we're already hitting like about two hours. We're already into next month. Yeah, we're already into next month. <laughs> hey, um, also if I can just again uh, do a shout out to uh, Ben Allen's uh, grip course over at uh, fxphd.com. Terms just starting. It is really awesome. I'm having a heap of fun working with Ben. He's a great DOP. Um, so, yeah, if you uh, like this show, I'm sure you'll like that. That's over at fxphd.com. Awesome. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks, guys. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC. FXguide, LLC.